Welcome listeners to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love hosted by Richard Osler. Done over 700 podcasts, but we never, never have done a podcast in this category. Um, the category being saving, saving people that are sex trafficked and then providing the aftercare and the services needed. And um, I have a founder, uh, the founder of Libertas International, Libertas International, um, to share a bit of his story. His name is Tyler Schwab. Welcome to the podcast, Tyler. Thanks, Pop Osler, for having me. It's an honor and a blessing to be here with you. Tyler is a um, dear family friend. Tyler um, has worked with our son, Jake, in this space. And I've had the chance to get to know Tyler. He's been in our home. I've heard him speak. Um, just somebody I deeply admire and respect for his courage to be in this space. Tyler grew up in Wyoming. He'll probably talk about what connected him to Latin America and wanting to rescue women being sex trafficked. He's in his early 30s. Um, as I mentioned, he's the founder and president of Libertas International. We'll link to that in the show notes. Tyler's email will also be in the show notes, and we'll link to an article that was written up about him um, in the Cowboy State Daily, a Wyoming um, newspaper, just to give more background of Tyler. But this is going to talk about um, this complicated space and Tyler's focus in Latin America to rescue um, girls and women in sex trafficking to provide them the service they need and why he's in this space. It's, uh, we're going to also invite you to donate if you feel inspired um, to this cause. This website has a link for donations. Tyler will probably also mention there's been some organizations in the space or some people within organizations, this broad umbrella of rescuing people in sex trafficking. And there's been some um, complicated stories in this space that may have caused you listeners to say this space is not legitimate or I'm not going to get involved in supporting organizations. And we invite you to consider um, Libertas and the work they're doing and not just completely walk away from the space because of the complications with some of the people and some of the organizations in the space. Is that okay for an introduction, Tyler? Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Thank you. I, uh, thanks for that sweet introduction. So I'll just let you tell your story. You could start with why you got in the space, how you connect with Latin America, what you're trying to accomplish, just your time to share. Yeah. Well, um, thank you for that awesome introduction. Um, yeah, I first connected to this space, you know, growing up in Wyoming, I wasn't super exposed to stuff like this. Uh, I grew up pretty sheltered in, in Wyoming. There's only a half million people in the whole state. And so um, you really have to, I think, would actively seek to find something like this or be exposed to something like this. And growing up where I grew up, it's just it's just very naturally sheltered. But I served an LDS mission. Um, I went to the Dominican Republic. and I, That's where I first was exposed to just... Uh, the vulnerability of women in the developing world, um, the the deep injustices that existed down there and uh, exposed to violence against women, violence against children. And um, I think the experience that the most uh, affected me is just seeing uh, young girls on the streets with with European men, American men in their mid sixties, early seventies. And just thinking, you know, why are these girls on the street? What are they doing? Why would they be with these men? Um, they shouldn't be out this late and just totally putting the blame on them, not knowing, you know, what was actually happening, happening on those street corners in those encounters and what would end up happening later that some of these girls had no 
no choice in what they were doing, what, who they were with. And it wasn't until I, I came home from my mission is was exposed to a university speaker who told us about human trafficking and, and what it entailed. And, and he mentioned the Dominican Republic as a place that he had gone and, 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 and seen human trafficking, you know, for me as like a, like a return, like an RM, like a fresh RM, like my heart was just broken. I was angry that people would take advantage of these people that you just grow to love so much. And so I went back, I sold everything I had that had value, uh, mattress, textbooks, um, anything that was worth, you know, over 50 bucks at that point, you're a college student, you're just so broke. In fact, you're in the negative because you're so much in debt. But I, I flew back. I just, I tried to do as much research as I could. I would go to these places where supposedly kids were being sold. And in my first encounter, I sat down with this little girl. Uh, I went into this brothel, not undercover or anything. I wasn't undercover. I was just looking to research. And I was very open about that fact. And and there was this 14-year-old girl working in this brothel and this bar. She had a pimp. And I asked the pimp if I could just have dinner with her. I wasn't going to touch her. At all. I just wanted to have dinner. And he thought I was a cop. He he threatened me. He told me to get out of his club. And and I asked him, I was like, how much is she worth per hour? And he was like, well, 20 bucks. And so I'll give you 25 for 40 minutes. And he was like, okay, sounds good. And that was my first exposure to like the evil of these people of just like 25 bucks. Like that's what he, that's what he was charging for this little girl for my time with her and, and how money spoke to him and it just totally lowered his defense on what I was, what my intentions were. And, and so I remember talking to this girl and just my heart breaking of how she ended up here, um, what she had to do. She was terrified of me when she first sat down with me and, and I was very open. of like, I'm not here to touch you. At all. I just want to get to know your story. And man, you would have thought I just told her that she just won a thousand bucks, like just the relief that flowed over her face. That this specific girl, she she was 14, she was small, um, and she was very Catholic, and so she was very innocent um, when it came to to sex, and uh, came from a very 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 conservative home. And so she told me she was like, my first night here, which was the night before, my first client asked for a sex act I'd never heard of. It was anal sex. And I didn't know what that was. And so my traffickers forced me to watch anal sex porn for the whole night in anticipation that I would know what would happen when someone asked for that. And she thought I was going to be the person to ask for that. And her story was someone came and, and they offered an education. They offered her a job. This poor family thought these people were a godsend, sent their daughter with her. And then when she got to this place, she they put a debt on her head. Um, they charge her for the every every food, that, every piece of food that she eats for the nights that she stays there. So it's a debt she'll never be able to repay. So she feels like she has to work. And then they threatened her of, if you tell your parents what's happening, we'll go after your little sister who was around nine or 10 at the time. And my heart broke. It just was just totally shattered. And I went back the next day to see if I could talk to her again. She wasn't there. They had moved her already. And I just spent you know a couple of weeks down there learning about these just awful stories that are happening to these, these girls, some boys, these, these Haitian immigrants. And I had made the decision in my head, but I was like, well, I'm going to do something at some point in my life when I have money, when I have a career, when I retire, then I'll be actively involved in this. And uh, your son actually recommended that I tell this story on the podcast. I don't share this story very often, but I told him when he was, um, when he was younger, when he was interning and he, uh, I think the story just stuck with him. So he's the one that actually told me to share this next part Good. of the story is I was coming home, you know, I was coming home on that flight. I took a JetBlue flight down and then I was taking a Delta flight back that goes to Atlanta and. And uh, someone had hooked me up with like a the Delta credit card where I got access to the club uh, back then. And so I was sitting in the club and there was this guy there and, and I had this, this Dominican hat on with like a Dominican saying on it. And, and this guy, he, he 
just made conversation with me. And he was like, hey, you should get back from the Dominican Republic. And I was like, yeah, me, yeah, yeah, I did. He's like, oh, that's cool. Like, I'm headed back to St. Louis. I just got back there too. And and he's like, what were you, what were you doing down there? And I made kind of a joke. I was like, oh, I was just hitting the clubs, you know, just kind of trying to have, trying like my dabble in dark humor to kind of relieve the tension that I was feeling. And whatever I said must have just triggered some kind of trust in this, in this, in this guy. Cause he was like, oh yeah, man, DR is great. I'm just getting back from DR. He's like, I can, I can't, he's like, I'm a, I'm a physician in, in, um, in St. Louis. I can leave my practice at five. PM on a Friday, be in the Dominican Republic by 10 PM on that Friday, and then have sex with young girls all weekend and be back at work by 9 AM on Monday. Wow. And this guy, I was like, just so disgusted. Like I, 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 I stood up, walked out and I just went through some reflecting of like, I can't wait 20 years. I can't wait 25 years. I can't wait another 25 days because people like this exist right now. And there's girls that are vulnerable to this right now. There's people that are going through this right now. I have to get involved right away as soon as I can, because there's people like this that are abusing these kids. And there's girls like the one I met in that brothel that are being exploited night after night after night. I couldn't wait to get involved. I had to get involved ASAP. And that's how, that's how Libertas International was first born. Um, It's a unique story. And, um, I think I'm grateful you're just so honest and straightforward. Um, here's a question. Um, you know, you're in your thirties now and is there, you're unique because a lot of people would have just gotten on with their lives and been exposed to a little bit of that, the Dominican. Can you look back at your high school self or your junior high self and just say, now that I'm in my thirties and see, can I, do you see evidence as sort of uniqueness of your life mission? even before you got the Dominican, just more connected to complicated topics and be willing to step into them? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I, I give all the credit to like my desire to serve now to my mom because she has such a servant heart. My dad has such a servant heart. Uh, my mom, my mom has always been good at creating safe spaces to where someone just needs a place that's warm, where there's food, where there's love. They come to our house to speak with my mom and she's just so present with them. And my dad, you know, he's, he really represents the best of us that serve like in the church of just serving without any, expecting anything in return, not even a thank you and doing it when it's super inconvenient for, for him. And like when I grew, like I was growing up, my dad would always haul me off the service project. And I was always so annoyed because it was like six in the morning and it was super inconvenient. But I just learned so many lessons from him to where I think as I got older, because in high school, junior high, I don't, I don't think I was that great of a kid. Like I just wasn't super kind. I was very focused on Tyler. I was very focused on Tyler's needs on playing basketball. And I think as I just got older, the, the more of the seeds that my parents planted in me developed because um, because I, in high school, in high school, junior high, I don't know if I was that good of good of a kid. But I can tell you a moment that kind of put me on this this trajectory of maybe one of like unselfishness. Well, I can tell you two, actually. Um, first one is, you know, in high school, I was obsessed with basketball. Everything was about basketball, basketball, basketball. And I thought I was going to, you know, play in the NBA or play college basketball. And um, I got this tryout at uh, Dixie State uh, to walk onto the team and to try to be something of a basketball player. And I wasn't going to go on a mission. Like I was like, ah, that's not for me. Like, I don't need, I don't need that. Um, so I went and, tried out Dixie State and I just like I I I got um what's what's the right term to use? I got destroyed. 
I got outplayed. <laughs> I was not fast. I, I couldn't jump. Everybody was taller, faster, stronger, better shooters, better, better dribblers, and just got embarrassed. It shouldn't even be on the on the on the same floor. And so on my drive home to Wyoming, I called my mom. Like, hey, tryout didn't go so well. I think I'm going to mission instead. Which which really changed the whole direction of my life because just I was on a life just full of selfishness and obviously a mission can really really change that. But on my mission, I, I still don't know if I 100% believed in everything that was being taught. Uh, I remember, and I just I wasn't I, I, I like I was telling you I was so selfish. And like back then we had like the quads, you know, like before yeah. we had like the online scriptures. And I just did not know the scriptures. I, I always skipped seminary. My seminary teachers were nice enough to like let it slide because, you know, small town. But um, I, I remember first night in my mission, I'm sitting here with all these missionaries. I just feel so out of place already. And this very enthusiastic MTC teacher, he was like, you guys want to know the secret to missionary work? And everyone's like, yes, we want to know. We want to know. And um, like, well, go to Moroni chapter 10, verses three through five, you know, that verse that everybody knows now. And all these missionaries from Utah, from Idaho, a couple from Washington are there in a second, just in a split second. And I'm flipping through the Psalms. I have no <laughs> idea where the book of Moroni is. I'm like, oh man, I'm in trouble. And so I'm like, uh, I tell the teacher, what, um, what page is it on? And he's like, oh, it's on page, you know, 514 or whatever the page is. And so I'm like, ah, okay. So I flipped the pages and I'm like, oh, I'm in Exodus. I'm not in the right book. I'm super lost. Like the verse that you guys are reading is not what I'm reading. And so my companion was nice enough to flip a couple hundred thousand pages for me <laughs> to get to the book of Moroni and reading like that verse and that promise. And, and uh, you know, I went on the mission, didn't really, didn't know if I believed it, didn't know the scriptures from anything. And, um, and just felt like such a hypocrite. I was testifying of, you know, these, this savior that I didn't even know if I believed in. Uh, I just felt like such a hypocrite. And in my second week in my mission, my companion was ran down by a car and um, he was hit by a car. I flipped over his face when he, when he hit the pavement, he looked like two Faced from the dark night, just his face is all torn off, picked him up, had his, you know, his bloody head against my chest and walked into a hospital. thought he was dead. And I just quit. I was like, I'm done. This, this people don't get run over by cars in the U S I gotta be done. I'm done with this. Went home, started packing my stuff. And I had this missionary that was like, look, sleep it off. Like you're in, you're in a state of trauma right now after what you've just seen, sleep it off. And if you want to, if you want to go home tomorrow, I'll take you home. So like, okay. So I, um, I got permission from my mission president to take a couple of weeks and recover, uh, you know, my recover from the trauma that I witnessed and try to heal. And, and in that, those couple of weeks, I really decided to just dive into the new Testament specifically and to see if I believe this. Um, and so I read, I read the new Testament. I was reading about, you know, Jesus, I was reading the book of Mormon for the first time. And I remember in a companionship study, I, I was telling my, um, we got to the part in third Nephi where Christ comes to the Americas. And I didn't even know that happened. When I was 19, <laughs> 19, I was a missionary. So I was telling my companion, I was like, Hey, did you know this happened that Jesus came to the Americas? And he was like, yeah, yeah, I know that. <laughs> He's kind of like, you know, it's kind of like a base of our religion. I was like, I had no idea, no idea that, that actually happened. But like I was reading it and and just like I I got to the I got to the end of the New Testament, read the Book of Mormon, and I was like, either this Jesus Christ is the savior of the world or he's a lunatic because of the stuff that he's claiming to be. Like, you know, he's he's healing the sick and he's walking on water, but he's also saying that he's the only way to through salvation. Like that is a wild thing to say if you're not the savior of the world. And and so I took that promise in Moroni and I I prayed to God and I said, um, if uh if it's real, I'll stay. If I don't feel anything, I'm gone. And I stayed. 
I got my answer. I stayed, I served out my two years and, and just, you know, Jesus's words of loving people, the supporting people, the work of justice, the, the, the helping the poor, how he, how he acknowledges women and their value. It's just something that I just internalized over those two years. And it just based my life around it since I'm not perfect at it, but it was, um, it was my mission experience. It really transformed me into a less of less of a selfish kid from Wyoming. Um, thanks for just being sharing your, some of your personal story in here. This is a podcast. You're a listener that people do that a lot. And um, that's a beautiful chapter in your life, really painful. And just, but I love the new Testament and the Jesus that you just shared. I see a picture of Jesus in the background on your wall. One of my favorite versions, um, depictions of him, I guess is the right word. Um, I love the New Testament, that Jesus that loves everybody and um, his work and the work you're doing that models that. Um, a lot of missionaries might like see something like you saw a European with a young girl and kind of like that's not, you know, kind of put that in the back of their mind and then get on with their life. But you want to talk, it's really unusual for what you did, as a lot of would be aware, I was aware of things in England that I was uncomfortable with, but, you know, I wasn't aware of any trafficking situations, but you, it's, you've kind of, your whole life now is pivoted on going back to the Dominican Republic, and that experience in the brothel and having a firsthand, being curious, I guess you were curious enough to sell everything, um, go back to that brothel. It's just really unusual, and your whole life has pivoted on that. It's forever changed your life because it isn't like you did this for a year and then got on with your life. This is your life. Um, in many ways, this is what you decided to define your life as, is helping people that are being trafficked. Talk, do you want to just talk more about that? And when you left the brothel and you got on that plane in Dominican with that connecting flight in Atlanta, did you think, this is what I'm going to be doing for at least for the next 10 years? You've done this for over 10 years and you may be doing it for the rest of your life. Yeah, that's a good question. It's, um, you know, just the injustice of it where the Dominicans were so good to me when I was a missionary. They were so kind to me. They opened up their home. You know, I only got a door slammed in my face twice in my home mission, but it wasn't by Dominicans. It was by like expats from Germany <laughs> or the United States who were living in Dominican Republic. It was never a Dominican. So like they just accepted me, they they loved on me. And so to know that people were taking advantage of of the most vulnerable in that way, it was just something that I couldn't sit with. It just it 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 made me so mad. And and like when I came home from a mission, I really struggled to find a purpose just because you just lose yourself into service and you just fall in love with the people and just and for me as a self, I was, you know, I was I was a selfish kid growing up to be able to lose that even for two years and just read the scripture every morning and serve my companions and serve these, these people. It was such an influx of just joy and life into me. And when you come home, um, I'm glad there's, you know, the church is giving more resources to this, but the coming home for a missionary can be really hard because then you kind of flipped and you kind of need to be selfish. You need to focus on what you want to study. You need to focus on how you're going to make money. You need to focus on when you're going to get married. You can, you need to focus on how you're going to just you, 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 you. And it just really struggled with that. I wasn't, I wasn't happy. I feel like I had lost a part of myself and that, and I feel like I could find it again in the Dominican Republic. And so honestly, even if I, 
I probably would have went back sooner than later anyway. Even if I didn't have that excuse of that people were being trafficked because I missed it so much. I just missed the feeling there. I missed the culture. I missed the people. And, and so going back there was, um, it was just a mix of just even myself, like trying to find purpose with myself. Cause I had lost it. And I just felt like I was just, I remember one time I was in my lowest of lows. I was sitting in my apartment. I'd slept until noon. None of my homework was done. And there was a bunch of little Caesars boxes across my bedroom floor that I didn't have the emotional energy to go pick up just because I felt so selfish. I just felt so helpless. I just felt so just daunted by what real life looked like and how selfish I was being. And it was just a really hard change. And, um, and what really hit me, um, you know, I think everybody has, uh, and, you know, I think everybody has a love for their mission and they, they love the people that they serve. When I got into the thick of the thick of things, again, um, doing anti-trafficking work, anti-sexual exploitation work, it affected me how many of the kids that lived in the families that I was serving were also being sexually abused or were also being exploited in some way. One of the families that I was closest to um, on my very last weekend in my mission, my parents came and picked me up and we baptized this little eight-year-old girl um, that completed this family. It was this beautiful moment. It was just one of the happiest days of my life. And then two years later, she was being sexually exploited because she she got a job at a cell phone store and, and this and the cell phone company was uh, with this, the owner of the store was taking advantage of her sexually in exchange for free cell phones for her family. I um, we used to have family home evening in this house um, in one of my first areas with this single mother, and you know running around uh, bringing us drinks uh, like these little soda. Um, cups was a six-year-old little girl and seven or eight years later she she discloses to me on one of my trips back that during that time her dad who lived in a separate house was was sexually abusing sexually abusing her and and, and did it for five years and I heard like five or six stories of that of just people that I was really close with um, on my mission that were also being sexually abused and sexually exploited so it hit it even hit home even deeper to me to where it wasn't just happening to girls that I didn't know yet, but it was also happening to girls that I had known and I had had known for a long time. And it just experiences like that is keep reinforcing why this work is needed. The work of uh, rescue, the rehab uh, of rehabilitation specifically because sexual abuse, you know, trafficking is one thing, but sexual abuse is so prevalent in the world that we live in today that, I mean, there has to be organizations, there has to be individuals that fight it, even though it's probably a losing battle. It's a, it's a battle that we might ever, not ever win. It's still a battle worth fighting. A battle worth fighting. Um, Tyler has uh, listeners, a bachelor's degree in healthcare administration and MBA. So he's, you know, didn't just spend all this time in Dominican. Um, and I like that you have that because now you're the founder and president of this nonprofit. And the complexity of putting together a nonprofit that focuses on Latin America. So I love that you, you know, have these skills as well as this understanding of the need. I don't know what you'd like to talk about next. Um, I don't know if you talk about Libertas and why you started and what you hope, what it is accomplishing and how people can help or anywhere you want to go, Tyler. Yeah. So Libertas International, um, our mission is um, the. Uh, recovery of victims, supporting police units in the recovery of uh, victims of human trafficking, the prevention uh, of human trafficking, which prevention in our mind, it, it means a really good prosecution, 
really good restitution and then making sure that these stories of these bad guys are published everywhere so that it creates some kind of fear for people that may engage in this type of behavior. And then um, the aftercare. That's where we, we spend the majority of our resources of taking care of these survivors, meeting those basic human needs of love, shelter, medical, and working our way up so that these survivors can open businesses, so they can get their tattoos removed, so they can go to college, so they can do all these things. That's where we spend the majority of our resources. And Libertas, we we work in all of Latin America. We've, we've dabbled in all of Latin America, but our three main countries are Dominican Republic, Guatemala, and our main operation happens in Colombia. In Colombia, our main operation um, is serving survivors of human trafficking that have been abused by American citizens, foreign citizens, supporting them in their aftercare, and then um, going after the American bad guys, these American people that, that have traveled, that have, that have found the most vulnerable that Latin America has to offer and have chosen to exploit them um, going after them, going after their wallets, going after their time to make sure they go into prison and then sharing those stories with the public so that people know what type of people are traveling to engage in this type of, of, of behavior. So it's, that's our, that's our work so far. It's, it's been good. Um, this year has been a record year for us as far as um, I think the current count is we have, we've received, we've achieved justice against seven American citizens this year, and hopefully we'll have it 10 by the end of the year. Um, we got some really good news this morning about some cases involving three really bad American guys. Um, they're still free, but the, the, the walls are closing in on them. And our average age of, of the, of the survivors that we support is 14 and a half. Um, and our youngest survivor in our survivor family is 19 months old. Wow. Um, that's a real difference. You know, I think you were pragmatic in your earlier about the totality of this. And, um, but this is the, this is where it gives me hope listeners is, you know, everyone that's brought out of trafficking, moved into Africa and the bad guys put away is a win and it changes the trajectory of a life. And so this is a cause worth fighting, even if it's a big, difficult, you know, challenge that may not be solved by one organization or one person. Um, this is a cause worth fighting. I love, uh, I'm a marketing guy, listeners. So when you sort of say, I'm going to focus on these three countries of Latin America, you understand the language, obviously, the culture, you love the people. That, that I like that. Um, and um, I like that you want to not just get people out of sex trafficking, but you want to do the prosecution and the aftercare. People and I have a soft spot for Africa because that's where our son Jake is, as you know, is where his work is, um, and where his clinical training is, and the work he does. And that is a really complicated space to help um, survivors of trafficking because their survival story doesn't just end, as you know, Tyler, when they're rescued. That's just a that's a really important milestone in their long journey to healing. Um, and that's what aftercare, talk about aftercare though, um, cause you understand this better to me for our listeners. Yeah. So, um, so we had this, I'll tell you a story. Um, we had this case of a, we call it project bat bridge. Um, we call it bat bridge because of, uh, it has to do with Austin, Texas and the, the, um, well, I'll, I'll, I'll bring that story around about cause it's a really cool, there's a reason we made it, named it bat bridge. So, um, about a year ago, about a year and a half ago, um, we got this little girl who um, was rescued from this Airbnb 
and she was taken to the police station and um and they were going to charge her with theft she's 15 little girl and um and this police officer that had training he was like something's not right like something in the situation is off why were you rescued from an airbnb why are they telling you that why, why did this why were those words on your police report and so she was detailing of like look i'm a victim like uh, yeah i was rescued from this airbnb and but there was this american guy in it and this american guy was was abusing me and my two friends and an American guy at that point had, had ran off to the States. Um, so this girl was like, she, the her social worker had sent her to a mandatory um, stay in an aftercare home that's uh, government run. It's a six week program that she had to go to. And, and she was pleading with this police officer. She was like, well, what am I supposed to do after I get Like when I get out, like I'm still going to be poor. I'm still going to be supporting my grandma. My, my mom still wants to kill me. Um, when this little girl was around three years old, she reported her dad for uh, abusing her, but she was so young. She didn't have the words to describe what had happened to her. So she told the cops, my dad stabbed me with a hairy stick. That's the words that she had to describe what was happening to her. And mother didn't put the blame on this little three-year-old girl said that she wanted it, said that she was seducing this guy. And so since then, this mother has been paying bullies in her school to try to convince her daughter to try to, to try to kill herself. Just an awful, awful, awful upbringing. And so she's pleading with the police officer, what am I supposed to do when I get out? And so he uh, he writes down, it was either my phone number or uh, or my social worker's number. They were like, look, call this number. Supposedly this group helps girls who have been abused by American citizens. Gave this number and this, and I wish she would have saved this because now I would have it framed. It was like her, her rosary. You know, like it was like this one hope that she had is getting help of like this little piece of paper but they do like cavity checks in these aftercomes when you go in to make sure you're not smuggling in weapons or drugs. And so she had to like hide it in her armpit, hide it between her toes, and then had to do everything she could before she memorized the number and then get rid of the paper. So when she got out six weeks later, she could call somebody and, and try to get some help. And so um, when she got out, she called us and um, we we have this thing, which, um, which we love to do. It's basically like a welcome to the family dinner where we empower them with choice. We say, where do you want to go eat? What do you want to eat? McDonald's, KFC, steak. What do you want? Let them choose. Bring their family. She brought her grandma, brought her dog, because where she's from is a dog-friendly city. So dogs can go anywhere that humans can. And we sat down and we talked, you know, how do we how do we get you to a place where you can you can be successful? And so she she didn't start naming names names yet of this American guy, but um she told us that she was in extreme poverty. She needed some food, needed some housing. And that she wanted to finish high school. And so we just slowly but surely worked our way up Maslow's hierarchy of needs to where we got her into high school. She was getting therapy. She was uh, in rehab to where she could get to a place where she could potentially finish high school. And uh, we had this case come through, um, this other case in New York about this, this man named Victor Galarza. And he went to jail. His name started ending up in the media. And um, our little girl read about him. And the justice that these uh, nine survivors accomplished with this guy from New York, this Victor Galarza. And this survivor was like, I want this too. I want justice too. I want I want the guy that hurt me to pay for what he did. And so she started naming it, naming this guy's name. This guy's name is Michael Roberts. He's been sentenced to jail, so we can we can name his name, but his name is Michael Roberts. We found out that he was a school teacher at an all-girls school in Austin, Texas. And he would travel down to Columbia to abuse three girls specifically, um, two of which have uh, have had past sexual abuse, and then one who has autism. He was looking for the most vulnerable. 
And he's violent, extremely violent. It was really into really violent sexual rapes. And so she, she told us about what he did. She had saved the screenshot. She gave us his picture, gave us his name. And so on our end, we worked to connect the Colombian government to the U.S. government to let them know that we have a case uh, that we can give them about an American guy named Michael Roberts who's abusing these girls in Colombia. And so um, these governments meet, they collaborate. Um, it, it was about a four-month investigative process to seize his online accounts, to interview our girl, uh, identify the two other girls that then came into our program as well to get help. And in September of last year, the Department of Homeland Security and the Columbian cops knocked on his door, took him into custody, and, and took him to jail. And then four months after that, uh, we all went to um, federal court and spoke on behalf of the survivor um, in federal court about what this guy had done to plead with the judge to give him the, the maximum sentence that he could, and also to take his cash. Uh, with the restitution claim, um, we took his cash, took 150 grand from him. And she wrote a letter. Our, our girl wrote a letter that she then read in federal court and talking about um, all the stuff that this guy had been, that he put her through, what she's accomplishing now, um, how she's planning on graduating high school this year, studying social work, which your son actually talked to her and gave her that recommendation so that one day she can work for Libertas International to help support survivors like her. And um, she, her last uh, words of her statement were, if I could go back in time, I wouldn't change what happened to me. I would convince your mother never to give birth to you to spare the world the pain that you would then bring to it. Wow. And that was the last word that this Michael Roberts heard before the, the U.S. Marshals uh, took him off to jail. After that, um, after he, he had received, after she had got just after he was in jail, she started telling her story um, to local media about what had happened, about who this guy was. And the online forums with like some of these American expats, some of these American pedophiles really blew up out of uh, fear because he had been sentenced to a long prison term. He had got a lot of his assets taken from him. And now he is suffering through mass embarrassment because his face is all over the media. And we, re we realized that this was a form of prevention because there were conversations that these guys were having amongst themselves like, hey, we got to not go to Colombia if we're going to do this because like those guys are going after these people. And there's a, you know, I love superhero movies. It's kind of my thing. And uh, there's this superhero movie that came out last year called The Batman, where um, all these criminals are committing crimes, they're spray painting banks, they're robbing convenience stores, and the bat signal goes up and all these criminals stop committing crimes. They look at the shadows and they flee because of the fear that Batman may or may not be in the shadows. And so um, we named this case Bat Bridge because of, uh, of that case, because of the, the fear that's creating amongst these American pedophiles, uh, because the story is being wi so widely shared. In Austin, Texas, there's a bridge that is home to the, the highest population of bats um, in the United States. And every night when the sun goes down, millions and millions of bats fly out from the bridge. There's, the bridge is always full of people watching this experience. And so the, the night of this, the, the night of the sentencing this year in Austin, Texas, we all went out on the bridge and, and to see all those bats fly up under the bridge um, and fly out into the night, knowing what had just been accomplished for this specific survivor on this day 
uh, was something was something very beautiful to me. And it's it's a wraparound thing of what Libertas International is all about on the justice side, on the prevention side, but then on the aftercare side as well. We're still supporting this girl. We still want to see her continue to heal, continue to thrive, continue to be happy, continue to have live in this safe space. And hopefully one day um, she can join us on the Libertas International team as one of our social workers. And uh, we're committed to helping uh, make that happen for her. Wow. I love hearing stories like that. As you were talking, Tyler, I thought of a quote from one of um, LDS church leaders over um, last weekend. We're recording this right after general conference. It was Elder Cook talking about the next life. All wrongs will be made right. And I agree with that, listeners, but I also, um, I don't think that's an invitation for us to not do what we can do now to make things right. We, and so here's a story of making things right now. And so we have the ability in our area of influence to make things right now or um, improve the lives of people in mortality, even though we know for those of you that are LDS, all things will be made right. But that doesn't excuse our responsibility to do things now in our circle of influence. So I love this story and um, improving mortality. And then I love this vision of her joining Libertas as a social worker and um, being able to walk this road with other survivors. Um, there's something about somebody that's been in that desert and knows the desert of being trafficked to be able to give hope to others. You're doing that, and um, people that have actually walked this road um, give hope to others. Uh, talk about um, donations, because one of the things we want to invite you to consider listeners on this podcast is donate to Libertas. Talk about where the donations go and then why you need donations in the first place. Yeah, so the donations is honestly what like helps us, keeps us going. And that's a lesson that I had to learn Um I worked for the Make-A-Wish Foundation for a while and, and I, uh, I served as a wish grantor where I would go to like these kids' houses and I would get their details of the wish and they'd bring it to headquarters. And I would, I would ask, uh, I learned a lot from Make-A-Wish because Make-A-Wish was a way that I could get involved with my time versus my resources. And um, when I worked for Make-A-Wish, they told me of like, well, like we kind of have the dual thing of like, you have to listen to what nonprofits need. If nonprofits say that the thing that they need most is your time, then you give your time. But if nonprofits tell you the most, the thing that they need most is the resources, that means they need the resources because they're, they're they're serving this population, they're granting wishes, they're serving survivors. And so it really changed my perspective on like when nonprofits would ask for money in the past, I always kind of get a little annoyed where it's like, ah, ask for money. But now it's like, no, as like the as like a founder of a nonprofit, um, you know, I ask for money all the time because I know I'm not asking for me. I'm asking for these these survivors that then come into our family, like survivors like the survivors I just mentioned. And so the 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 best way to support Libertas with your donations is to become a monthly donor. If you go to libertasfreedom.org or libertasinternational.org, it's the same website. There's a donate button. You can become a monthly donor of anywhere between $5 a month to $1,000 a month. And it just goes to help us plan out, you know, our budgets for the next, for the future, plan how many survivors we can serve, helps keep our, keeps our staff funded. We have um, a, a part-time social worker in Dominican Republic, in Guatemala and three full-time staff in Columbia, a psychologist, a social worker, and then an ex-police officer who focuses just on the interventions uh, and restitution and justice against these American uh, traffickers. 
But when people give monthly, like I, my biggest thing is I always want Libertas to be a safe space where, because asking for help is not easy. Um, in all my conversations with survivors of human trafficking, of sexual assault, of bullying, of just all these different things over the last 10 years, it's, I've grown to appreciate just the vulnerability that it takes to be like, look, this is, I'm going to share with you the most intimate and often thing that's ever happened to me or happening to me. And I need help. Like that is not an easy thing to do. That is so very hard. It takes so much vulnerability. And so I always want to make sure Libertas is a safe space to where when a survivor is brave enough to share that with us, that there's a space for them in our program, that there's a space for them of like, thank you for sharing that with me. I'm so sorry for what's happened to you. Here you are safe. Here you are loved. And here you will get help. And so like we had an experience this even this last month of two amazing little girls that I'm so just impressed with and so in love with. They're just so amazing. Um, they were abused online uh, by an American guy. Uh, this American guy reached out to them and said, hey, um, he pretended to be someone from their middle school. And he asked for some intimate pictures from both a 14-year-old little girl and a 12-year-old little girl. And this, the, they, they believed this guy that he was... It, if they sent them these pictures that they would get money in return to help their families. And what ended up happening is they were sextorted. Uh, these guys, this guy ended up threatening them saying that he was going to publish them all over the internet. And so in the end, this 14 year old girl and this 12 year old girl, they felt trapped. They felt lost. They felt used and they didn't know where to turn. And so they turned to us. Uh, they came to us through our contacts of the police and, and these two, ama- there are two amazing, amazing kids that came to us and they told us this intimate, intimate thing, this awful, awful thing. And here they got love, they got acceptance, they got healing. And now like they're, they're, they're both in school. They weren't in school before they're, We helped her mom, their mom set up a little small business where little girls help on the weekend. And like every single night we get a little voice note from them on WhatsApp. It's maybe like 20 seconds long, but it's just expressing this profound gratitude. And the littlest one, she's, she's a sweetheart. She's 12 years old. She called me the other day and she's just thankful. And we never asked for thank yous. We never asked for our help is always 100% free, never expect anything in return, except for that they work really hard and making their dreams come true. And this little girl, she said to me the sweetest thing, because the abuse went on for about a year about what was going on. And she just expressed thanks to Libertas International. She said, I felt more joy in the last 15 days than I did the whole last year. And to hear like this, this, this profound statement by this little 12-year-old girl was just it's one of those moments where you're like, okay, like God has me where I'm supposed to be. And the work of healing and the work of justice is blessed by him. And I'm so glad that we have monthly donors that gave monthly to create a safe space to where this 14-year-old little girl and this 12-year-old little girl came to us seeking help, seeking safety, and that's what they got. I love hearing those stories. Um, talk to... Um, and I think you may have done this in an event I attended, where you talk to parents, um, American parents that are worried their own kids are going to be trafficked and and talk about the statistics of if they become a victim, where it usually starts and what they can do to keep their own kids safe. Because there's probably a lot of American parents, LDS parents listening that have young kids. Um, talk to them, talk to them and just what they can do to keep their own kids safe. Really good. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, it's there's a lot of like misinformation online where it's like you see someone share like a Facebook post. It's like oh, there's white men at Target. They're looking to traffic your kids. Statistically, that's probably not going to happen. It does happen on rare, rare occasions. Like even today, like there was a case of um, 
of this little girl from New York that was abducted in the forest and the guy held yeah. her for ransom. And now she's, she's been rescued and the guy's arrested. And, um, that is super rare, uh, more often than not. And like LDS families are particularly vulnerable to this. Um, but one of the two things that I'm going to mention, the first one is a fairly normal where it's social media. Um, traffickers are smart. Traffickers are aware of their own resources that they they don't need to take your 14-year-old daughter or your 16-year-old boy or wherever to a brothel or, brothel or a dance club or a strip club to have them get exploited. They can actually do it from the comfort of their own home. And so um, social media, like you, I really believe that every parent should at least have the social media app that your kids have. Now, using it, you know, it's a different story. Like, obviously, like, they're going to have more experience knowing how to use it, but you should at least have it to know how it works, know how to open a message and be aware of who your kids are communicating with. Snapchat, Grindr, TikTok, Instagram, Facebook. Instagram and Facebook, like, they're two apps that do not do a lot of protecting for youth. And so uh, there's a lot of people that are reaching out to kids via Snapchat, via Facebook. And for local, for local specifically here, like in Utah, Wyoming, Idaho, um, a lot of the kids that end up being exploited meet their abuser uh, via those social media apps. And so being aware of who your kids are talking to and which apps that they're using is, is the first piece of advice that I would give. The second one, this I, I, I specify this because you know it's an LDS audience. I'm assuming it's listening to your podcast. Um, and your know, LDS audiences are trusting. There's a lot of people that can be involved in your kid's life at any given time. Coaches, bishops, stake presidents, home teachers, uh, ministers, I think is what they're called now. There's so many people that can be in and out of your home and in and out of your, your circle of trust. And statistically, those are the ones you need to be the the most concerned about. Um, your kid is almost like 200 times more likely to get abused by someone that goes to your church versus like a stranger they don't know because they already have that circle of trust. They are able to manipulate spiritually. They are able to ma- manipulate mentally. And so it's even the people that are closest to you, um, uncles, aunts, grandmas, grandpas. We get a lot of cases here in Utah of grandpas that abuse their grandkids. And so being um, being aware of who you leave your kids with uh, and having an open line of communication with your kids, using the proper terms for their, for their parts of their body. Um, don't use these terms that sometimes people use to call a vagina, a vag- not a vagina, like use, use the correct term and make it to where if, you know, God forbid something happens to your kids, that you have an open relationship with them, that they can tell you and not feel embarrassed, not feel like you're going to put the blame on them, know the proper terminology for those body parts that have been affected. That would be my recommendation for LDS parents, just because so many people, because it's, you know, it's a beautiful thing, the LDS community, how tight knit we are, how, how we look out for each other. We, we, we help each other out when people are in need. And predators know that, unfortunately. Predators know that and they take advantage of that closeness, of that community. And um, it's something that I always tell those parents because it's what I see most common in the LDS community. That's a really helpful discussion. Um, That's consistent. I'm sort of a data-driven guy, so I agree with the data you're suggesting. Um, Anything's possible on a stranger situation, but it's more likely to be somebody um, that's a trusted whatever in their circle. Um, talk about yellow flags that a parent might see that their kid is um, in a potentially sexually abusive situation. 
Um, their mood is a big one. If they, if their mood changes drastically, if they're tired, if they're, if they're even moodier than what a normal teenager is like, that's a red flag that something is happening. Um, I've, yeah, I'm not a parent, but I used to see that with, even like with the girls in the Dominican Republic that I was, that I was close to on my mission is when they turn, when I, when I knew something was happening is when they became teenagers and then they became even moodier than what they usually are that was my signal of like something, something off is going on in their house. Um, self-harming is, is a pretty common, um, is a pretty common sign that it's, um, someone is going through something really hard. Now it may not always be trafficking or abuse, but a lot of the survivors that, that I work with self-harm, it's, it was one of the first signs to their parents that something was uh, going on in their lives. Um, Keep an eye on the social media account. If they're on their phone a lot, they're talking with people that you don't know. If you haven't met in person, um, that's obviously like a big yellow flag. And we, there was a case that happened in, um, in St. George a couple of years back where the, the parents noticed that there were some pretty big Venmo transactions going through her, their daughter's account. And the daughter was like, well, I just, I'm selling my Pokemon cards at school and I'm making money off of that. But it, it wasn't true. What happened was that she was being sex torted and the trafficker was paying her portion of it via Venmo um, because the trafficker lived out in like Nebraska or something. And so those are, those are some of the signs that, that people can, that people can check out. And, and there's some really good groups as well. Like I'll put a plug for some different groups that do some really good trainings on what to look out for as far as like signs of human trafficking. One of which is, is actually a locally based one. It's called the Maloof Foundation. They're based out of Logan and they give really good trainings on um, what to look for in your kids, what to look for as far as like their moods or demeanors where something might be happening. But even if something is happening or is not happening, it goes back on the parents, I believe, to have an open relationship with your kids so that um, they feel safe enough and comfortable enough to tell you when something is happening, knowing that they're going to encounter love and support versus um, anger and blame. I love this phrase, open relationship, and sort of um, even talking factually about our body parts. And um, I'm aware of some of the, I think it's sextortion is when somebody sends a, a picture and then thinking they're sending it to a friend. And then it's a bad guy that says, I'm going to publish this all over the internet unless you give me money. And then you give money. And then he wants, I assume it's usually he wants more. And um, there's been some in our media, and I'm sure you're aware of this, Tyler, of some people that have died by suicide because they get in this box where they've sent an inappropriate picture of themselves to somebody that they think is a a girlfriend or just it's a it's a juvenile thing to do that's not a good idea, but it may be done in pretty innocent thinking, but then it becomes the middle of this box that they can't get out of, and they die by suicide, and the parents then finally figure out the backstory. This is somebody in a different country, a different part of the state. And I think, you know, I'm, we're not perfect parents at our house and we didn't ever run into this, but I've had a couple of people open up to me, um, knowing I was just a safe person. And so this is what's going on with me. And I realized they're in the middle of this and they're being asked to go to Walmart and get gift cards. And if they, or they're going to, you know, and so it's just these um, but I love this phrase that Tyler uses, an open relationship and open communication. So if I were being a parent again, I'd say, kids, sending pictures of yourself is, you know, inappropriate is not a good idea. 
this is what could happen. But if you ever got in a situation where somebody's asking you for money and you're embarrassed to tell your parents what go what is going on here, tell us anyway. Um, this is how we'll respond um, if you if this is the reality of your life or if you're being sexually assaulted or if somebody's touching these parts of your bodies. I don't think that increases their likelihood of being a victim. I think it increases the likelihood of what Tyler's inviting is that they would open up um, even though their perpetrator is threatening the whole family if they open up that you have already told them how you'll respond if they open up. And that's true about all everything going on in their life. And so we have family expectations and family rules and we have open communication so that we're the trusted partner in their life when so they can open up about the realities of their lives. So I love what you're teaching us. And our, you know, I have a daughter that's really good at teaching factually about body parts and age appropriate. And I see her doing that. And I think this is a good thing. Um, these are parts of our bodies and talking about them with the accurate names and, and age appropriate ways, I think is a good thing. That was a terrific segment. Um, other things you'd like to talk about, we've got like eight more minutes before at the hour mark, just things that you want our listeners to know. Yeah, I think, um, I think there's two things that I, I can share on. I think one is just how, um, people that are LGBTQ plus are affected by this and how we're supporting right. that. And then, uh, just how, um, my relationship with God is, is changed over the years and how he's, that's great I guess, too validated or, or guided my work. I don't know, even like, or corrected me like at times. And with the, uh, you know, in our, in our program, we, we support survivors that are LGBTQ plus that are, um, that are lesbian, that are gay. Uh, we, we want to create a safe space for them as well, because, um, a lot of them are exploited because of their, of their, um, of their sexual orientation. And it's, their stories are horrific. We have this this very sweet transgender girl who was, uh, because of her um, sexual orientation, was trafficked and abused by two American men in their mid seventies. They came down to Columbia and abused her together, and she's been through it, and it's and she's still going through it. And we're walking with her in that healing, and and she was abused because of her sexual orientation. Um, another one is, um, you know, I've. I wouldn't claim to be an expert, you know, on this uh, by any means. I'm learning every day, but um, I had this experience in a taxi once with this very sweet uh, 16-year-old survivor that was who's been through more abuse than I, maybe anyone I've ever met, um, abused physically, sexually, forced to do things to, to animals, just horrific, horrific abuse. And so she made the decision a while back that no man would ever touch her ever again. And uh, we were in the we were in this car. We were driving to this birthday party. And we were with this one survivor who is 17 years old. She has a boyfriend, and we were teasing her of like, "Well, this better not be the guy, because you know we'll we'll beat him up or we'll scare him like when he if he tries to marry you." And and she's like, "Oh yeah, 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 you know whatever." Like like kids do, like they laugh it off or whatever. And and this this survivor that um, has a girlfriend, she spoke up as well, and she said, "Well, what about me?" And we're like, "Well, what about you? What?" And she was like. Well, with my wife, my future wife, the woman I'm going to marry, will you also intimidate her and also scare her and also make her feel scared of you? We were like, do you want that? And she was like, yeah. Like, okay, then yeah, we'll do that too. We'll make her feel scared of you. And she just wanted like that validation. The that same her, Yeah. That her having a plan to marry her future girlfriend. She also wants the same 
you know, treatment that people always joke of like, don't you mess with her. There's going to be consequences or whatever. Love she that. wanted that as well. And so validating that for her and making, making it known to her of like, like you can marry whoever you want. We're, we're on your side and we're whoever you marry, we're going to make sure that they know that we're always on your side. So very, very sweet. And, um, and we always want to make sure our program is inclusive for those as well. Cause that's, I mean, you know, better than anybody when someone reaches out for help and support um, and they're, uh, they have a sexual orientation that's, that's, that's different than maybe other people. They're looking for safety, they're looking for help, they're looking for support, and they're looking for someone that will offer that help without, without judging them. And, and that's, uh, that's something that we try to include in our program as well. We're not perfect at it yet, but we're trying to get better every day. And then um, the God thing, you know, I mean, I, uh, people ask me this all the time where, you know, how has your relationship with God changed or evolved or done these different things? And, um, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's definitely, um, it's not perfect. I'll tell you that it's definitely my God, my relationship with God is sometimes really good. And then on me, I'm sometimes very angry and upset about the things that are going on. And, and, um, I got a, I could tell, I could tell two stories that, uh, that kind of reinforce this point. Do you want the one about a little boy or do you want one about pizza? Which one do you want? Both. Okay. I'll, I'll share with you both. Okay. <laughs> so the pizza story, that one happened first. So I'll share that one. Um, the pizza story happened, uh, around 2018, 2019, 2018, and just angry. I was angry with God. I was I'd seen some things, um, some survivors that were very close to me had passed away. Some had been murdered. Some have taken their own life and just very disappointed with what the world was looking like. And, um, and so I, I spent the, uh, I spent my 28th birthday in Peru and my grandma, she is, uh, every year since I was like four, she's always given me 50 bucks for my birthday just to use whatever I I can use it for when I was a kid, I used to use it to buy uh, the new GameCube game in college. I took it, I took myself to the movies, um, with a buddy and it was this, uh, I had the 50 bucks for my birthday cause she gave it to me early cause she knew I was going to Peru. So I'm in Peru and, um, I'm at this aftercare home and these, it's an aftercare home for girls under the age of 12. And so it was just chaos. Like there's just, because they had planned this really sweet surprise birthday for me and they wanted to play and they wanted to talk. And, and we had these meetings with these government officials and I just didn't have time to give them, I need, need a half an hour. That's all I need was just half an hour. And um, so I was like, how do I distract these 20, 10 year olds for half hour? And what I, what I think of as a pizza, order pizza. And I happened to have a, uh, the only money that I had on me was that 50 bucks. And so I called Pizza Hut and I was like, can you deliver ASAP, please? And I was like, bring me whatever 50 bucks worth of pizza is. And they're like, yeah, yeah, sure. Sounds good. So I bring the pizza, the girls eat, and we're able to have our government meeting for half an hour and then go play with the kids. During the day, I noticed that there was this new little girl in the aftercare home that I'd never met before. Um, She's quiet. Um, She was a little taller than the rest of the girls. She was 11 and she was Venezuelan. And she had been there for maybe 24 hours. And um, I got to meet her, but I didn't really get to connect with her a whole lot. Uh, but I got to meet her a little bit. And then I went on my way because my flight had left, was, was going to leave that next morning. Uh, 
around midnight, I get the notification from Delta. It's like, hey, your flight's been delayed. Our flight, our, the plane is stuck in Atlanta or wherever. And so we booked, we booked you on a flight that leaves 13 hours later. And so I got a whole nother day in Peru. And so this aftercare home, it's, um, it's run by a group of nuns. And so I called them up. I was like, hey, what are you doing? And they're like, well, it's Sunday, so we're going to church. I'm like, oh, okay. Have fun. And they're like, do you want to come? And I was like, yes, sure, I'd love to come. It's a Catholic, it's a Catholic service. And so I go to the home, and um, we walk to church, and uh, I end up sitting next to this little Venezuelan girl. And she'd been in the aftercare home for about 48 hours. She had some bruises on her arm. Um, and the nun kind of gave me a, a, a quick spiel of like her story where she was, tra- she was traveling from Venezuela to Peru and she was forced to perform sex acts at stoplights. And that's how she was, that's how, before she was rescued. And so I'm sitting next to her and I'm, you know, engaging conversation with her and she's, and she's pretty open. And, and uh, I was like, um, so how do you like the aftercare home? Do you like it? Okay. And, and usually when girls come from, the streets of the home, it's not a good transition at first because nobody likes being taken out of their normal, even if their normal is hell. And so I'm sitting in this church and I'm like, well, how do you like the aftercare home? And she was like, oh, I love it. It's awesome. And I was kind of like taken aback. I wasn't actually sure how to respond. I was like, really? Like, why, why do you like it? And she was like, well, my favorite food is pizza. And on my first day in the aftercare home, the home brought me pizza to make sure that I felt welcome, that I felt loved, that I had my favorite food. And so any home that would uh, give me pizza on my first day has to really care a lot about me. And I was shook, man. I just sat there in that Catholic church and I was just like, I just, it was kind of like speechless where like I was so angry at God during that time. I was so upset about different things going on. And God, in a very subtle reminder, used 50 bucks and a pizza to let this girl know that she was safe and loved, but also to let me know, hey, you may love these kids a lot, but don't ever forget that I've loved them longer. I've sacrificed more for them. And I love them a whole lot more than you do. And that realization to me came through pizza, came through pizza and 50 bucks and how it just affected this one little uh, Venezuelan girl. The second story, which was um, kind of the same thing. I think, you know, I go through my pride cycle, just like they talk about in the Book of Mormon, where I'm on a spiritual high and then maybe on a spiritual low. And the pandemic was not good for me. The pandemic was, it, it affected me a lot. It removed me from my travel. It removed me from the people that I loved. And I was back in it. I was back in my my doubtful ways. And um, and before the pandemic, I'd worked with this very special survivor who. Um, had been when she was six years old, she'd been thrown into a fire by her mother. So she had some extreme scarring um, on her body. And we worked with her for a long time. And um, prior to the pandemic happening, we found out that she was pregnant. Um, she and it was a high risk pregnancy. And so to protect her life and the life of the, uh, the life of the child, um, we took this girl to the hospital. She gave birth and she named this little baby Tyler. This little baby, there's a little, there's a little baby that's it's named Tyler. It's a, it's a son of a survivor. And I love this survivor very much. She's, she's very, she's very close to my heart. The pandemic happened. Um, and because this, this survivor that we were working with wasn't capable of being a mother this current time, these two kids, Tyler and her older and his older sister were taken into the system 
and they were lost in the system and we had no control over where they went or who they were with. And we, we just kind of lost them into the abyss of the government system. We thought we'd lost them forever. During the pandemic, um, we were doing as much as we could to try to work cases, to support survivors, to enact justice. And I met this really cool missionary couple from, the, from an evangelical church in Guatemala that had identified an American man that was using his position as an American missionary to gain access to vulnerable girls and exploit them. And so um, me, these two evangelical missionaries, and the Guatemalan government began working this case to, um, to try to get this guy in jail. And I became really close with this missionary couple. They're a really great couple, very sweet, very kind. And uh, we worked this case together. The guy went to jail and he'll never be able to abuse these kids uh, ever again. And so then me and this missionary couple, we kind of lost touch for about six months. And so I'm back in Guatemala. Um, I'm sitting in a Domino's pizza. It's interesting how pizza always plays a weird role in like some of these stories, but I'm sitting in a Domino's pizza and I'm just reflecting on the pandemic. Travel had just opened up. I'm getting some pizza ready to take to a different aftercare home. When I get a phone call from this, uh, from this missionary. And she was like, Hey, I got a question for you. And it's like, I was like, okay, cool. What do you got? And she's like, well, we're in the process of adopting. And we've been trying to adopt in Guatemala for a long time. It has never quite worked. I never quite got a good feeling about it. And, um, and I just got a, we just got placed with these children because now we don't get to choose who the children are. We just, um, we, we offer ourselves to the, to the Guatemalan government and they pair us with kids that meet the needs that we're requesting. And they're like, I just want to call you and let you know that I had the weirdest thing happened. And I was like, oh no, what happened? Like bad guy, what happened? Like what would you do? And she's like, no, it's nothing like that. It's just, I was paired with this little boy that happens to have your name. And I was like, really? And she's like, yeah, it's super uncommon. I don't know of a Guatemalan named Tyler. Would you mind taking a look at his case file? And I was like, yeah, sure. It's the same kid. No, the exact same. Yeah, it's the exact same kid that we had helped. We'd helped rescue the mother. Mother had given birth, named their son after me. Then we'd lost those kids forever in the system. And this missionary couple that I became friends with, um, in this case against this American missionary, then got paired with um, with Tyler and his older sister. And once again, just sobbing in this Domino's, where I'm just like, I'm, I told this missionary, I'm like, I know this kid. Like I, I explained the whole story of how I knew his mother and all these different things. We're crying on the phone and Dom, I have her on speakerphone. So like everyone's just looking at us speaking English and we're just crying. And, and once again, it was God's reminder of like, of once again, I love these people more than you do. And even in the darkest times in a global pandemic in extreme poverty and exploitation, I can make good things happen. Like there's nothing that you could have done here that would have paired up this family except for my holy hand. And he's right. There was nothing I could have done. There was a point where I got, I did everything I could do and God took over the rest. And now like they're there, they are this missionary's kids. They live a great life. They go back and forth between, I believe they're from Missouri and Guatemala. And, um, and he's just, he's just a little boy named, named Tyler. And I'd never, I've never met him personally. He's never met me. Hopefully we meet one day. But his story and that of his sister and his mother is just how God reminded me that God is there and that God loves these people much more than I ever could. Those stories are treasures, Tyler. Um, listeners, I've 
you know, those of you that work in really complicated spaces and see the human suffering, I think it's logical to get angry at God and say, God, you have the power to not have this happen. Um, why does it happen? So I've learned to validate people that are angry at God, and I think he can handle it. And I've had some of those feelings at times too. Um, but I love that you also um, see his hand in these two beautiful stories. I'm reminded of a book I haven't read by Kate Holbrook. I believe it's by Kate Holbrook, an LDS author who has since passed away. Both things are true. And this is a, you know, you, you can be angry at God and see his hand and all in the same lifetime or maybe even the same day. Um, and so I think that's okay. It's just mortality is really complicated. And if you're in these really complicated spaces like Tyler and our son Jake is and some of you listeners, it's, it's really complicated. Why doesn't God fix all this and not just wait to the next life as Elder Cook talks about where all wrongs are made right? He certainly, in the doctrine of the LDS faith, is the ability to do anything he wants to do in mortality. Um, but I love these stories, and I love your work, and I get emotional because this is a really, this is a big deal what you're doing. It's changed your whole life. Um, you have sacrificed sort of a traditional life, you know, with married and kids and sort of a normal Wyoming guy living a normal Wyoming life. Um, for a very different life, um, it's a wonderful life. It's a beautiful life. And um, there's a lot of lives that you're changing and you're really brave because there's not a lot of people doing this kind of work and you're young and you've got a lot of experience. And my brain goes to the 42-year-old Tyler Schwab and the 52 and the work you're going to continue to do, and the leadership providing the lives you're changing. Um, Question, I'm going to keep you on if you can, you know. Yeah, my pleasure. There's people that are in really tough spaces, like my therapist friends in general and others, maybe firefighters or people on the front line and just deal with trauma and see so much pain and have to develop boundaries so that they can compartmentalize that, if that's the right language. And any advice from your own experience to others that are trying to be in really complicated spaces and sit in complicated human situations and also have enough boundaries to keep himself emotionally healthy enough that they can continue to have a life and continue to be in these complicated spaces? Oh, that's a good question. Um, well, I definitely say like the life of trauma, like being exposed to it is definitely the hardest of two paths. Like there's this, there's this old movie called the matrix, like old movie, like, like mid two thousand or something where uh, the guy in the matrix, he offers this guy two pills, a blue pill and a red pill. And if you take the blue pill, you get to just live in bliss. You get to not know it's actually happening much easier, much happier, much, uh, much more chill. And the red pill, like it's a lot harder. You're, you know what the truth is, but it actually gives you the chance to make an impact. And like, that's why I really admire just like the work that you do and giving a voice to so many of, of, of our LDS brothers, brothers and sisters who maybe have felt unseen to where it would be a heck of a lot easier for you to just not, not do that True. and just pretend that, you know, everything's good. Everything, everything is good. Everything is, uh, I, everything is just like what I'm going through right now. It's good. And, and the hardest path is one that you've chosen where it's like, I'm going to give a voice to these people. I'm going to open myself up to their pain and, uh, and bear it with them. Another superhero movie that I love, it's uh, X-Men Days of Future Past. And there's a scene where 
a young Professor Xavier is talking to an older Professor Xavier, and the young Professor Xavier is going through it. He shut off his mind to hear the pain of others, and he's just like, I can't turn on my mind to hear them because there's so much pain and there's so many of them. And the older version of himself breathes life into him. It's like, yeah, but it's the greatest gift that we have is to be able to bear that pain with them to help them get through it. And it makes us better. And it's such a beautiful scene. Anybody that hasn't seen that scene should totally check it out. But um, so the path, the the path, you know, of knowing what's actually going on is definitely the hardest path, but also super important to like take care of yourself um, and do things that intentionally bring you joy to check out. Like for me, I love to hike. I love this hiking and feels like a lot of, it reminds me how beautiful life can be because of these beautiful landscapes that we're blessed to live in and it reflects beauty and some of the ugly that we get to, we have, where we have to see every day. Um, I love working out. Working out is a great outlet for me to make me feel like I'm in control of my body, help provide an outlet for my emotions. Um, I like just checking out hundred percent. Like I love to binge TV shows. I know me and your son are very similar in that aspect <laughs> where it's just time to just turn it off and just focus on something else and just go into somebody else's life, whether it's bones or seal team or the punisher or whoever, just not being in our own head for, for a second. And then like, I'm glad you, you brought up like just your mental health and your therapist. And there's still, even now, like so much of us, uh, maybe like a, a bad rap. Like if you go to a therapist, it's like, Oh, you're crazy or you're suicidal or everything like that. And that's just not the truth. Like, I think we all need a therapist. We all need someone to help work on our mental health. And cause the mental health it's, it's, it really truly isn't an epidemic that if not treated will, will kill a lot of people. And the pandemic did nothing, no favors for that. Like if anything, I think the pandemic exposed just how much so many of us need therapy. And so I really appreciate, you know, like these athletes that have come out, athletes like yeah. Kevin Love from the NBA, that's like, hey, I'm getting help. It's okay for you to get help too. Even like someone local or that used to be local, Ricky Rubio, yeah. who was the point guard for the Utah Jazz, and he missed the World Cup this year for for the for Spain. I love, I know he loves playing for Spain, so he can focus on his mental health and normalizing that. And and the companies, you know, that put into place of like, hey, we have mental health days where if you need to just check out for a few days, you can do that. Um, validating those feelings that people have, because I think as people grow more aware of the of mental health and how they need to focus on their mental health and take care of their mental health, that it's not stigmatized to where uh, you're not bullied or looked down upon for voicing like, hey, I have a therapist or, hey, I need I, I need additional help on top of the help that I'm already getting. And for those of us that work in trauma, I, I think it's absolutely vital um, because we, I had this therapist tell me once that you want to, um, with the stuff that you see, like I'll just focus, you know, on my theory that I focus on, you know, anti-human trafficking and the trafficking of these, of these girls and boys. I want to keep those memories and those images in my heart, but not in my head. I feel like when they're in my head, when they're in my heart, it gives me added motivation to ask for funding, for to ask for followers on Instagram, for grants, um, for all these different things um, that, that help the cause. But when they're in my head, they start to affect my sleep. They start to affect my relationships. They start to um, dominate different aspects of my life. And it can be really unhealthy um, to have that much trauma in your head that's untreated for, for a long amount of time. And so get a therapist to keep those memories here, but not in here. It's a terrific segment. I'm so glad I'm, these questions come to my mind that 
help me, help listeners, that two pill, I think I've seen that movie, but I haven't seen it since I've sort of stepped into more complicated spaces. And that was beautiful. And I have seen a therapist a couple of times in my life, listeners, and um, I love that that's becoming, as Tyler's invited us to, there's no shame around that. Um, we're coming to, I wanted to, you know, listeners, our son works at OUR that we've talked about, Jake, you've worked at OUR. Um, we are so proud of the work our son is doing there and has done there. And you've been a great friend and mentor to him and been walking the same road there. And um, we're just so proud of our son and his ability to step into complicated spaces, make multiple trips. He's in the aftercare world, this world where um, people that have been trafficked need to be in this stage that Tyler's talked about. And um, the stories he tells us are incredibly painful, incredibly complex. And we are so proud of him for his willingness to be in this really complicated space and bring hope and healing. And we're proud of his work at OUR and proud of what you did at OUR. And we're not going to talk about OUR in this podcast, but I just want to, unless you want to chime in, but I'm really proud of the work that many people are doing there and have done there. And I'm grateful for other and for your organization um, that's less known, but is focused on Latin America with a really thoughtful leader in you that I deeply trust and admire and um, so committed to this cause and has a wonderful backstory on why you're doing this and encourage our listeners to consider donating um, to Libertas. Anything else you'd like? We're going to put your email in the show notes, but I'd love you just to say your email out loud in case anybody doesn't get to the show notes and just any concluding things you'd like to say about anything, Tyler. Yeah, I guess uh, I'll give three things. My email is tyler at libertasinternational.org. And so, yeah, hit me up. Let's talk. Let's uh, see if we can't get you hooked up. Is people hooked up as monthly donors or somewhere to become an activist or an influencer or an advocate for our cause? I'm happy to help discuss ways through that to help further. Because once again, like when I, I know what I'm, when I'm asking for support, I'm asking for follows or donations. I'm asking for, for these girls and, and they are the, part of me that I am most proud of is to see them and to know them and that they even choose to associate a little bit with me is, is the honor of a lifetime. And it's something that I, that I, it's the most precious thing that I own. I love them very much. Uh, two is just to validate what you say about Jake, like Jake is such a beast and he's such an awesome guy. And I don't know if he listens, I don't know if he listened to this all the way through, but if he's listening, Jake, I love you. So proud of you. <laughs> Thank you for your friendship. And uh, I can tell you, Jake is my, I can, as the top 10 things I enjoy about living in Utah, Jake is in the top 10. That's awesome. And so uh, he, he's, a, he's a good guy. And then, uh, yeah, I would, uh, my last thing is just, um, you know, once again, um, I know when I ask for support, when I ask for donations and, and followers and, and downloads on our podcast or whatever, like it's, uh, it's not for me. It's not for Tyler. Like if I was asking for Tyler, I wouldn't feel comfortable enough to ask for Tyler. But I'm asking for for these survivors, like the ones that, that took down this professor from Texas, this 19-month-old baby that's now in our care that we're looking to support her. She also seeks justice on behalf of the American man that raped her, uh, the little girl who got a pizza at, at, at a church and, and helped her know that God loved her, that someone's looking out for her. Like I'm I'm asking, you know, for for people like her and and I will ask for them all day. And all the time and our staff, like our staff that's paid our local staff uh, at Libertas International, 
they're the ones that make everything go. It's a Colombian led staff. It's a Dominican led staff. Uh, it's not an American led staff. Uh, I'm super intentional about empowering the Colombians to fulfill the work of justice and heal their people with a little bit of support from, from, from our end. And, um, and I just thank you for the space, man. I appreciate the space. You give me on your podcast and I can talk about my faith and some of the ups and the downs. I don't like, I feel kind of embarrassed now, like sharing the story of how I had to flip through a couple hundred thousand pages, a couple thousand pages to get to Moroni. Cause I was looking through the Psalms That's looking funny. for Moroni, but it's part of my story. You know, it's, it's part of my, my growth and part of my story and, and how I, uh, I, I, uh, I've, I've come a long way. So a long way to go, but it's, it's, it's always a good story to share and, and, and only a specific faith audience. that's part of the LDS culture <laughs> understands the struggle of like the quad and having to find Moroni in the midst of, of the Psalms and not knowing that there's a separation between old Testament, new Testament, book of Mormon, and the doctrine <laughs> of covenant. That's um, something that I think our listeners love about you, Tyler, is they're hearing some for the first time is you're real and you're authentic and you're, you're not trying to be somebody you're not. And that resonates with me. And I think it resonates with our listeners and I think it builds trust and, and the people know they can reach out to you and know you get it and you're not trying to be somebody you're not. And being deeply authentic and vulnerable, as you know, and as our guests teach me, allows us to be vulnerable also because you create this safety. So I just smile when you tell that story. And um, I love your kind thoughts for LGBTQ friends. You know, that wasn't a central focus this podcast, but I love that was just naturally part of the work you're doing. Um, and recognizing that that is an, an invulnerable population that is generally a more vulnerable and maybe trans being some of the most vulnerable. So you just being a thoughtful, intentional, educated, um, you know, man gets that and, and is aware of that. So listeners in the show notes, we'll put Tyler's email, we'll put um, libertasinternational.org, we'll put um, the Cowboy State daily story, a little more background on Tyler. We'll also put his Instagram account. I would say the Libertas Instagram account so you can follow um, what they're doing. And um, thank you, Tyler Schwab, so much for being on the podcast. I'm moved and um, may God continue to support you in this important work as you're saving lives and bringing hope. I think bringing hope is one of the greatest gifts you can give to somebody and you are doing that. And that $50 pizza story and all the other stories that you may not even be aware of what you and your organization are doing for others um, just gives me hope. So thank you, Tyler Schwab. Appreciate it, man. Thank you for having me on. All right. We will sign off from another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. 